So um, we are continuing on in this, this series through the book of Revelation. And what Revelation is, is it's an unveiling. It is a pulling back the curtain on reality. Um, it is both a letter, a pastoral letter given to real churches in the first century and also to the church global, to Midtown West today. And it's an apocalyptic book, which simply means it uses images and themes and figures in figurative language to describe um, God's plan to bring the conclusion of history and heaven breaking through to earth. That's all that means. So it's a letter and it's a book, an apocalyptic book, but at the central of both of these genres, what holds is un unveiling. It is pulling back the curtain foremost on Jesus, that we could see Jesus better. It's a revealing by Jesus. He's the one pulling back this curtain. And it's a, re a revealing of Jesus. That's who we are seeing. But it's also pulling back the curtain on reality, that there is more than meets the eye, that there is more going on than what we can see, that things are not what they seem. And so that's why the most repeated imperative of this book is look, behold, look, see, see that there's more. We need this curtain pulled back to see what's really there, to see what's really true, what's really good and beautiful, to see our Jesus seated on the throne, bringing about the fullness of redemptive history, of his kingdom and its coming. And indeed, it's here. So look, behold. And this morning, we arrive at chapters four and five. So we've finished through the letters to the churches, and now we're in chapters four and five. And this is the great throne room scene, which we will cover most of today. We'll, we'll cover the end of chapter five in the coming weeks, but all of four and, and most of five. And this scene, this throne, throne room scene, is the most pivotal scene in the entire book of Revelation. If we miss what is happening here, we will not understand the rest of the book of Revelation. If we miss what's happening here, if we don't understand the significance of the paradox of the throne room scene, that there's this paradox going on, if we don't understand that, we cannot understand the rest of the book. So that's no small task at hand. But this throne room scene, in its narrative arc, so in the narrative of it, the scene itself, it gives us a glimpse of the narrative of all of redemptive history. So we see in this, in this drama, this, this scene is like a drama unfolding. We see the drama of the whole world, of all of redemption unfolding. That it is like a play with a spotlight panning and widening and, or, or a camera and a film zooming in and panning and zooming out. That we have this drama of this scene of the throne room and it's gonna tell us about the drama of all of history, of why everything is and exists. So the challenge of this this morning, this morning I need you to be old enough to read fairy tales. I need you to be old enough to read fairy tales. C.S. Lewis and his dedication uh, of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he dedicates it to his goddaughter Lucy, and he writes that as he's finished the book, he realizes she's too old to read fairy tales, that she's not the same kid that she was when he started the book. But this is what he says. Someday, you'll be old enough to read fairy tales again. And when you do, take this book off the shelf, dust it off, and let me know what you think. Someday, you'll be old enough to read fairy tales again. Of course, what he means, what he and Tolkien and all the great writers 
mean and know is that fairy tales are not merely childish, make-believe stories, but they actually tell us about reality. They help us experience as we dive into other worlds to see and dream and connect our body and soul to that which is really true, to the reality, through the imagery and themes and so forth. And this, friends, this morning, this is the true fairy tale. This is a true fairy tale, the true story that this actually is reality. So we must be mature enough to be childish. We must be old enough to read fairy tales, to jump into this drama of the throne room scene that seems too good to be true, but it really is true. So would you do that with me? Would you jump into this drama, the greatest drama ever told? Would you open your eyes and behold? Would you look, see, behold? This is all true. And not only true, but good and beautiful and more than you could ever imagine. So uh, who's reading our scripture this morning? Meg, come on up. While she's coming up, I just want to briefly remind us where we are, where we've been. So Revelation begins with John on Patmos, this desert island for prisoners where he is abandoned to die. And he hears a voice like a trumpet and he turns and he sees Jesus. Jesus with hair as white as snow, with fire for eyes, with a sword as his tongue, holding the seven stars. And John falls as though dead, but Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder and says, do not be afraid. Fear not, for I have conquered. For I have conquered death and am alive forevermore. And then he tells them to write these seven letters to these seven churches, which we just finished. We just finished the last one of the church of Laodicea. And so here we are, Q scene. This is following that letter. If you'd read it for us. Revelation 4, 1 through 5, 10. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what you must, what you must, what take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then they saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, 
who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, truly you are on the throne. What a magnificent picture, drama that's unfolding before our eyes and that we get to be a part of it. You've invited us into this great story of what you're doing. Would you help us this morning see, would you help us behold you and the lamb in all the glory? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Sorry for my voice. We've got uh, back to school illnesses running around our house, so I've still got a lingering cough. Hopefully I don't cough up a lung up here in front of you this morning. But um, this throne room scene, this is a chapter, or two chapters, of paradoxes. Of paradox. Give me a second. This is a chapter of paradox, so let's see how this paradox unfolds. So we begin, John has just heard these seven messages to the church, and then he looks, he beholds, he hears the voice again like the trumpet, and he turns and he sees a door open in heaven, and the resounding voice of Jesus like a trumpet, come see what must be, John. And we have God on the throne, and this magnificent description of power and authority seated on the throne with flashes of lightning and thunder coming, beaming, with fire all around. And of course, this same imagery is the imagery all the way back in Exodus used at Mount Sinai of God, of this terribly awesome God who has all might, all strength, all power, the almighty, the one with all the might, with all the power, with all the authority to judge and act and will, whatever there is. And in front of him, in front of his throne, is a sea of glass. That the sea represents this chaos, this uncertainty, but before God's throne, it is still. That with his voice alone, he can still the waters. That he sits on the throne at peace. That he is not threatened by the chaos of the sea and of this world, but sits on the throne at peace, that as The nations rage as the kings rage, as the emperor Domitian, who's cast John to this island, as he is bowing up in all these nations and all this chaos, God sits on the throne and he is at peace. It is like still water before him. It is like glass, like crystal. 
The world rages, but God is not. He sits on the throne as the true one, the true worthy one to be on the throne. And this throne is not far away past the galaxies. John hasn't been transported way, way, way up in the sky, all the way past all the planets we know. No, this is right here, right before him on Patmos. And what it's saying is Emperor Domitian is not in control, that there is a throne. There's a throne right here on this deserted island. There's a throne here with all power and all authority, and God is on it. Right here on this island, right here in this room, right here in Aiken Elementary, there's a throne. And God sits on it. He is the one with all power and might and authority. And that should terrify us that we might fall dead before him like John did. That's what this imagery is getting at. But then we have the first paradox of this, of this scene. Surrounding the throne, verse three, was a rainbow. A rainbow. In the midst of thunder and lightning and fire, we see this image of a rainbow surrounding the throne. The sign of God's mercy, right? The symbol of his mercy and faithfulness given all the way back at the beginning in Genesis to Noah that he would never again destroy the earth by flooding it. And what it communicates is this. This is what this paradox communicates. It is safe to come. That though there's this terribly awesome God with all power and all might and all authority, he's also one of mercy and faithfulness. And so it is safe to come to the throne room. Hold on to that for a second. We'll get to how it's safe to come. But this opening imagery, we have a God who is just and might and powerful and that he is merciful and faithfulness such that it is safe to approach him. And then we see around the throne is the fullness of the redeemed. 24 elders representing God's people from all history, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. This image of this is the redeemed people of God throughout all time. And then we have these four creatures that m might sound strange to us, but they represent each of the animal kingdoms. Again, totaling up to this image of everything that lives and breathes and has life and was created is here before this throne, worshiping God. They are falling down, never ceasing night and day to praise the one on the throne who lives forever and ever, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy are you. Worthy are you to receive all glory and all honor and praise for everything that exists was created by you. And by your very will, all that is came to be. That is what they cry out in praise. And remember... This letter, this, this book of Revelation, is first going to those seven churches who receive those letters. And so this is the vision they get coming off, coming off of those letters. Some letters of encouragement, some of judgment and a call to repentance, but this is what they get. After, after they've read those seven letters, this is the vision that they get. What are they thinking and feeling and experiencing? to the persecuted and the suffering, that there is a true one on the throne who is at peace, who subsides the chaos, who will right every wrong, who will end injustice, hope. Hope, God is on the throne. To those who have been compromising their worship for ease and comfort, 
kind of mixing in with the worship of this world so they could be comfortable? What are they feeling? That they have been distancing themselves from this throne room, from this image of this God on the throne. So persevere, overcome. This is where life is. And to those who we saw last week, the complacent, the church of Laodicea, those who were in need of nothing and had everything, they were self-satisfied, whatever splendor they had, whatever riches, whatever idea of glory they thought, this is what makes us great, this pales in comparison to this image of God on the throne. Like, wake up, look, behold, this is true wealth. This is true power. So you can come as one who is needy into this room, not that you are in need of nothing. And of course, all of these apply to all of us because these seven churches represent the church universal, the church of all time. And so whatever the initial reaction is to this scene, the call is the same. It's an invitation. Come, come, behold, a door in heaven is open. Come to the throne room, come to the heavenly choir and praise for God has conquered for he sits on the throne. Behold, there is one on the throne. Your suffering is not in vain. He has overcome. Look, see who holds the true feast. It is safe to come here. Behold all glory and honor and praise. Not your glory, Laodicea. Behold, here is true glory. Here is true honor. Here is true praise and true wealth. So come needy. A door is open. Come into this throne room and cast down your crowns before him. And then as we enter into chapter five, this is where the spotlight pans across the stage. This is where the camera zooms in to the hand of the Almighty seated on the throne. That's how chapter five starts. A scroll. Zooming in on his hand, there's a scroll. Perfectly sealed. The scroll of God's will, of redemption, of all of history. That everything is not random and meaningless, but God is making all things new. He is recreating. He is redeeming the plan of all history in his right hand, sealed. But who can open it? Right? That's what's shouted. Who is worthy? Who can fulfill all history? Who can bring about the will of God? And the search across heaven and earth and under the earth. Who is it? Who is there? Who can do this? Who? Who? No one. No one. No one is able to open it. No one is worthy. And John weeps loudly. He is wailing. Weeping in heaven? Weeping in the throne room? How? Can you imagine? John is in this full mind, body, soul experience of this vision, of this door opened in heaven. He's, he's on this island deserted, but wait, there's a door opened in heaven to the throne room of God, this just and awesome and terrifying God who has at the same time merciful and faithful, who's not thrown by the chaos that John is experiencing, but he stills the waters who has a plan for all of history. He has it in his right hand, this scroll, to bring about recreation, to right every wrong, to end injustice, to conquer evil, to establish his gracious rule in a kingdom 
that has no end. But, but wait, there's no one who can open it. To do it, to fulfill, to accomplish this plan. I mean, this is devastating. Can you imagine how dreadful that would be? Like this image of this grown man weeping. An image that if we see in real life is almost jarring to see a grown man just absolutely wailing. But that's the only response to this experience, this drama that John finds himself in. And we can get a a little taste of this in our dreams, right? When we're, we're thrown into the drama of our dreams and all of a sudden everything goes wrong and we feel that so deeply. Except this is a real vision. This is reality. This is the greatest vision ever and the greatest reality ever told that this is true. And John is in the midst of it, and there's no one, there's no one who can open the scroll. No one is worthy. But wait, one of the elders says, weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, look, John, behold, the lion of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Weep no more. The lion has conquered. He can open the scroll This is it. This is the climactic moment. Weep no more. The lion, this lion is this messianic image all the way from Genesis. This Messiah, this lion has come. He is here, the one from David's line. He is here now and he can open the scroll. Weep no more. He is here to conquer, to overcome, to end injustice, to defeat evil, to triumph as the lion he is. And this is it, friends. This is the paradox. This is what we've got to understand to understand the rest of this book and really understand all of Christianity. The lion is here, and John turns to go look at the lion, and behold, a lamb. In the middle of the throne, a lamb, a little lamb. The great paradox of this scene is that he turns to see this great, magnificent, strong, powerful lion, and he sees a lamb, a little lamb who was slain. There's two words for lamb in Greek. The one frequently used, even by John in his gospel, is not the one used here. The one used here literally means little lamb, like Mary's little lamb. So John turns to see the lion who has conquered who has the power and authority to do this, the powerful one, the almighty, the worthy one to take the scroll. And he sees a lamb. He sees Mary's little lamb as though it had been slain. A slain little lamb standing on the throne. And yet, this little lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. This imagery of all power in the horns and all seeing, all knowing in his eyes. That this slain little lamb, who is also somehow the lion of Judah, who has all power and knowledge and sees all things, he is worthy. And he takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father. This is the paradox of Christianity. This is the paradox of history. This is the true fairy tale of redemption. That the scroll is opened by the death of the lamb that the entirety of human history is fulfilled through this. When I turn to see the lion, the strong one, the worthy one, the one who has all power and authority to accomplish history, to bring about the very will of God, when I turn to look, I see a lamb 
who was slain. That instead of a lion who devours and crushes and conquers by his might, I see a slain lamb who has been crushed that he might conquer. The lamb slain that I might be redeemed, that I might be purchased for God. Like, whoa, whoa. Okay, hold on. That's what verse nine is saying. Look at verse nine, chapter five, verse nine. Singing to the lamb who now stands in the middle of the throne, worthy are you, little lamb, to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed. You purchased people for God from every tribe and every nation and every tongue and made them a kingdom and priests and they shall reign with you forever. Okay, so like this, is, this is just beaming with paradox. So first, history is accomplished through this death. Through the bloody slaughtering of a little lamb that that's what it is to conquer. That the almighty God died? Okay, now we're talking about fairy tales. We're talking about myths. Surely, right? No. The almighty God died. The true fairy tale, that God came down to earth and he dies. He dies to conquer, overcoming death and sin, that we might be made conquerors with him. That this this weakness, this death, this slain little lamb is the climactic moment of all of human history? That this is what it is to open the scroll, to bring about the kingdom of God and his gracious rule? Yes, the death of the little lamb who now stands on the throne. Okay, so then if somehow I can wrap my mind around that paradox, that that crazy reality that God died, that the feat of humanity, the greatest victory, the greatest accomplishment in all of human history was the death of a lamb, okay? If I, can, if I can wrap my mind around that paradox, but then for what? For what purpose? To purchase people for God. To purchase me for God. To purchase you for God. So that it is safe to come. See, this is the finality of the image of the rainbow, of God's mercy and faithfulness on display in the death of the lamb to purchase me so that it is safe to come, that I might come to the throne and be with my father, that I've been ransomed, purchased to God to be with him and live forever and to worship the lover and redeemer of my soul, to sing a new song with this choir that it is safe to come because of the little lamb. The little lamb, the lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, who was slain that I might be ransomed to God. And the paradox of the lamb tells me about the paradox of myself. Think about how much of your life is spent trying to be worthy, worth something. That one of my deepest, most core desires is to have worth, is to be worthy, is to matter in some way. That everything I do in my work, in my family, in my friendships, is to be worthy of something, of love, of friendship, of acknowledgement, of accomplishment, of prestige. That it absolutely drives everything I do. Is that, am I worthy? Do I matter? Do I have worth? 
and the ridiculous try to wrap your mind around paradox of Christianity is that at the most central, climactic, the most important of all of human history, the answer is, I'm not worthy. Right? That's the search that goes on across all heaven and all earth and all time and under the earth. Who is worthy? No one. And yet, wait, the worthy one, the lamb, the one who all of human history points to, this worthy one opens the scroll by dying for me. That you and I have so much worth to the worthy one that he is slain to purchase and ransom me that I might be God's inheritance. That is the paradox of Christianity. That is the paradox of us that we discover through the paradox of the lamb. It's that I am far more helpless and weeping than I could ever dare think, that I even want to get a glimpse of. And yet at the same time, I am far more loved and worthy in the eyes of the worthy one than I could ever dare hope. That the lamb was slain, that you and I could be God's inheritance. Does that sound like blasphemy to you? that we could be God's inheritance. Like, whoa, whoa, God created everything by his will. Everything that existed is his. He can't even have an inheritance. That doesn't even logically make sense. That is what this is saying here. That the lamb was slain to purchase us for God. This is how Ephesians 1 puts it. That Paul prays in verse 18 Verse 15 through 18, Paul prays this, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see what? That we might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. His inheritance, the saints, you and me. That he is worthy and the worthy one by his love has made us worthy. That made us his inheritance, his treasure. And this is where that precious verse, that precious line in verse eight comes in. Look at chapter five, verse eight. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In the throne room, the lamb takes the scroll he accomplishes all of history through his death and the elders fall down and worship him holding what? Our prayers. The prayers of the saints that your prayers have made it to the throne room of God, that they are not worthless. That every single prayer you've ever prayed is precious to the lamb. It is poured out like pure worship before him that you haven't uttered a prayer without it being held dear by the lamb. Every one of them poured out before him and answered through the overcoming of the lamb, through the conquering, answered. Every one of your prayers have been answered. This is not like a, a trivial Southern saying, like your prayers have been answered because Jesus died for you and your soul saved. So you don't even pray. No, the exact opposite of that. Every single prayer you've ever prayed has been kept in the throne room of heaven before the lamb. Every single one held around him, poured out before him like pleasing incense. 
answered and that he has overcome. As Tolkien said, everything sad will become untrue. That because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because of the slaying of the lamb, everything sad will become untrue. And it has. That every longing, every despair, every groaning, every deepest prayer you've ever prayed and every smallest prayer you've ever prayed, they've all been kept in heaven by the lamb. And because he has overcome, because one day everything sad will become untrue, they've been answered, that we will weep no more because the worthy one has overcome and we have been made worthy, made a kingdom of priests to reign with him forever. Where there will be no more tears, no more sadness or pain, that we will see the fruit, we will see the finality We will see all of our longings and desires and hopes and dreams and dashed hopes that we've prayed for fulfilled because everything sad will become untrue because they've been poured out before the lamb as he's taken the scroll through his death and that we will feast with the father and with the lamb, our Jesus, the lover and redeemer of our souls forever. So if you leave with one thing today or really from the whole book of Revelation, leave with chapter five, Verse five, weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion has conquered. The lion has conquered. Behold, the lamb has conquered. That's what this whole book is about. Jesus has won. He has conquered. The lamb has conquered. Death and sin and the evil one have been defeated. He has conquered. Everything sad is becoming untrue that God is actually making all things new and right and good and beautiful. He's bringing about his gracious rule and kingdom that heaven and earth would be united. And here it is by the lamb, the worthy one who opens the scroll through his death. And by opening the scroll, a door is open in heaven. Behold, look, don't you see it? A door is open in heaven. It's safe to come. It is safe to come. So come, come look, come behold. It is safe to come because of the lamb, the lamb who loves you and gave himself for you, slain for you. He has conquered. Are you tired of suffering and pain and persecution? Come behold the lamb, the lamb on the throne. He has conquered. Are you pulled by the ease and comfort of the world? to live like that, to live in the way that it worships, come behold the chaos stilled before the lamb. This is where life is. This is where peace is. This is where glory is. The worthy one loves you and he has made you worthy. So it is safe to come. Let's pray. Lord, you are the worthy one. And somehow in this paradox that we'll never fully understand, you've made us worthy by your love. So I ask that you would draw us into worship as we join this heavenly choir that is praising you right now, that as we join this morning in that worship, that you would draw us to behold you in all your glory and all your power in the lamb who was slain for us. We pray all these things 
in our precious Jesus' name. Amen.